0: It's going to center around just two verses in Genesis 49, verses 25 and 26. So let's all stand together as we read this this morning. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 25, says, "...from the God of your Father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors." Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. God, I believe the word that you have given me to share is something that many in this room right here need to hear. Many that may be listening on the internet right now or will later need to hear a specific word that you have for them, for their life. God, so I know that Satan would want nothing more than to distract us from getting and hearing what you have for us. So, Lord, I pray that you would bind him and his minions from anything that they would want to do this morning in here to keep anyone from getting what you have. Lord, I pray for clarity of mind, attentiveness and focus, uh, just an attitude, God, to be able to hear and receive from you lord if we miss you this morning we run the risk of this being nothing but a, a boring dry religious ceremony and us leaving here only feeling good that we've done a good deed for the day god i don't want to be a part of that at all or we want an encounter with you and so i ask that that happens speak to us in jesus name we pray amen One of the things that we talk about and one of the, the main focuses that we have in this church is the importance of family. And that's the second part of the vision and the purpose of Evangelistic Temple. What we are about is believing the gospel, belonging to the family, and building the kingdom. We all know that many of the problems in our society today are a direct result of the breakdown of the family and so we want to do everything that we can to prevent that from happening in this church, everything we can to help strengthen families. And ever since we started this, this focus, there's been a lot of good stuff that have come up. I mean, we have, we have seen some fruit from this, but it has also in some ways caused something not so good. We have many families in this church body that are, are broken in one way or another, and so this focus on strengthening family units in a lot of ways can cause them to feel somewhat disenfranchised. Like they don't really feel a part of this whole family thing. And I get it. I mean, if I were a single dad or, or my home did not fit... The mold of what Christian culture defines as the ideal family, then I believe that I would feel a little bit out of place in a church that put a lot of focus on upholding that ideal. I do not want that to happen in this church. And for those of you that may can relate to that, I want you to know that just because your family may not fit the mold that a lot of people in church uphold as the ideal family, that in no way means that you are any less a vital part of this church family. You are just as important and just as valued as anyone else. And this message this morning is going to challenge what American church culture has upheld as the definition of the ideal family. And in doing so, it's going to do two things. For one, it's going to give hope to those of you who, who think that you have failed in the whole area of family. And two, it's going to relieve the pressure off of those who feel so stressed out by trying so hard to live up to that ideal. You know, as Christians, we all know that the worldly culture around us doesn't define things the way that the Bible does. But I have come to learn in my years of being so heavily involved within church culture that some of the ways that it defines things don't always line up with Scripture either. I mean, just because we define may define something that's opposite of the way that the culture of the world defines it doesn't necessarily mean it's the way that Scripture defines it. Doesn't mean it's a biblical definition. Our definition of things should always line up with God's Word, with His definition. I mean, even if His definition doesn't line up with the definition that American church culture has come up with. And this morning we're going to look at this and how it relates to the definition of the family. And looking at those three areas the world, church culture, and the Bible. I believe in many ways we're going to find three different definitions there. If you ask the culture of this world what the definition of the ideal family is, you're going to get lots of different answers. They're going to say, well, it depends. One person's truth is his truth, and it may not be the truth for somebody else. So the definition of an ideal family can mean many different things. It may be two dads. It may be two moms. It may be one dad, or it could be just one mom. Or it could be one dad and five moms, or a mom that used to be a dad. I mean, it can come in many different Forms And it doesn't really matter what it looks like as long as there is just love and mutual respect within that family. I mean, the world's definition of the ideal family will be all over the place. If you were to ask the church culture to define the ideal family... What you're probably going to hear is something along the lines of it's a man and a woman united in marriage with two and a half kids who all love each other. The marriage is strong. The kids are always well-behaved, respectful, and responsible. They all eat at least one meal together a day around the table, and they spend time every day in prayer and Bible study together. And yes, those are good things to want in your family, Those are good things to strive for, to do as a family. And it is a definition that's completely opposite of anything that you'll find in the world. But the question is, is that the definition of the ideal family that we find in Scripture? Is that God's definition or is that just man's definition? And keep in mind, I'm not talking about the definition of marriage here. I'm just specifically talking about family. You can have a good definition of something. You can even have a great definition of something. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be God's definition all the time. When I first sat down to put this message together of the ideal family, I went looking for an example of one in the Bible. And you know what? I couldn't find one. Nowhere. What I did find over and over and over again were families that would be the complete opposite of the definition that we uphold in church culture. There are lots of families in the Bible, and there's not one that I have found where anyone would look at that and go, that's the kind of family I want to have. I mean, most of them are the complete opposite. Pretty much everyone in here is pretty messed up and dysfunctional. You know, one of the biblical qualifications of being an elder or a deacon in a church is found in 1 Timothy 4.4 4 that says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And the way that most churches interpret that is that that means that that man's got to have a family that fits that ideal mold that we uphold, that I talked about a while ago. But if that is the correct interpretation of that, then there are not very many men in the Bible besides Jesus that would qualify to be an elder or a deacon in a church today. There's one particular family I want us to look at this morning because if there ever was an example of a dysfunctional and messed up family, it's this one. And it's the family of Jacob. And it's no wonder that his family was so messed up because he started out in a pretty messed up way. I mean, Remember, Jacob was the one who pretended to be his older twin brother so that he could get the blessings and the inheritance from his father that was always passed down to the older brother, the firstborn son. But he lied and cheated and manipulated in order to get it, which caused his brother Esau to despise him for 20 years. Jacob eventually left home and he fell in love with this girl named Rachel that was the most beautiful thing that he had ever seen and so he goes to her father Laban and says that I want to marry Rachel. And Laban agreed and he said I'll let you marry my daughter but first you're going to have to work for me for seven years and at the end of that seven years I'll give her to you as your wife. And he wholeheartedly and excitedly agreed to do that. And so he he worked those seven years as hard as he could. And it was probably the fastest seven years that went by in his life because he knew he was going to get this beautiful girl. And so finally the end of the seven years come and he shows up for the wedding ceremony. And back then the tradition was that the bride would have a veil over her face that completely obscured her face. And it wouldn't be lifted until the ceremony was complete, and they were man and wife. And so here comes uh, the bride, and here comes the groom, and they're going through the ceremony. And, and Jacob's just waiting for this thing to be over so he could see this beautiful creature again. And finally, the ceremony is over, and he goes to lift the veil, and he's, whoa, puts it back down real quick because it wasn't Rachel. It was her older and much uglier sister, Leah. That's what the Bible says. And so he goes to Laban and he's like, what is going on? You told me I could marry Rachel. And Laban said, I know it. I know it. I did. I'm sorry, but I didn't think it was right for the younger sister to marry before her older sister did. So I made the switch there. He said, but don't worry. You work for me for another seven years and then you can have Rachel. And Jacob does. I mean, he wants her that bad. And so he works another seven years, and he finally is able to marry Rachel. And so now he has two wives, both of them sisters, and these sisters absolutely hate each other. You know how when uh, mom and dad are not getting along, or somebody in a household is mad, You don't even have to hear them fighting. You can just walk in the house and sense the tension, right? I mean, there is just something in the air that you know, uh uh-oh, somebody's in a bad mood. Somebody's not getting along. I mean, can you imagine Jacob's household with two wives who constantly were fighting each other and hated each other? I mean, you could probably cut the tension with a knife in his home. Well, he has six children with Leah, but Rachel wasn't able to have any kids, and so she was... Very jealous of her sister because of this. And so what does she do? She makes the wise decision to give her servant girls to her husband so that he can uh, have children with her. She can claim them and, and raise them as her own. Being facetious, that was not a wise thing to do. Eventually, she did have a child of her own much later in life and named him Joseph. So in Jacob's family, he's got 13 kids, 12 boys, one girl, and four mothers. You think your family is dysfunctional? I mean, this sounds like an episode straight off of Jerry Springer. And many of you know what it's like to live with both parents in your home, and others of you know what it's like to have step parents. But imagine what it must have been like to have both. I mean, you've got your, your real parents and also three stepmothers all in the same house. Talk about dysfunctional. Talking about confusing and not being on the same page about discipline and and who gets what and which mom is talking bad about which kid and so forth. I mean, it had to be the most chaotic family on earth. And you would assume that with that kind of a family structure, structure that the kids had to be pretty wild, and they were. At one point, their little sister was molested by a man in another town, and some of her brothers went and not only killed the man that did this to their sister, but they killed every single man in his hometown. They come back, and Jacob finds out about it, and he's like, You boys did what? Great. Y'all have now disgraced the whole family name. We're going to have to pack up and move far from here, and they do. Not only that, there were some pretty inappropriate and perverted things going on in Jacob's house. Like one of his boys falling in love with the mother of some of his siblings and had an affair with his stepmom. On top of all that, the youngest boy, Joseph, was hated by all his older brothers. And you know that story. They wanted to kill him but ended up selling him into slavery instead. So, you think that if Jacob wanted to be an elder or a deacon in a church today, and people look at, at this, you know, 1 Timothy 4 4 and say, well, let's see what your kids are like, if Jacob would be able to be in that office in a church? No way. Not if the way that we generally have taken that verse to mean is, is right. Look, here's the deal. Some of you, I know you think that you got a raw deal. When it comes to your family, many of you know what it's like to have parents that split up. Some of you know what it's like to have uh, to adjust to step parents, or know what it's like to have a child that's not from your own blood, stepchildren, and the the issues that come with blended families. Some of you parents know what it's like to have a child that twists off and doesn't live the life that you had hoped for them to live. And I would say that every one of us have experienced unmet expectations when it comes to our families in one form or another. Especially when our expectations are to have the ideal family that American church culture has come to define. And when those expectations aren't met, we think that our family is the exception rather than the rule. And everybody else has got it all together, and nobody's family is as bad off as ours is. And it can be very easy to get discouraged when things don't go as expected. Many people will feel the way I described earlier, that they don't really fit in to the rest of the church family because, I mean... After all, this, this twisted assumption that all the families in a church, are, they, they've all got it together. I mean, they're all the ideal family. and they, They've got everything together. They're, none of them are messed up like mine is. And so they think if everyone in the church knew what their family was really like, they'd be judged and rejected or, at the very least, treated as if they had this scarlet letter. They are a failure. Not like everyone else. You know what we tend to do the most when our family doesn't meet our ideal expectations? We fake it. And we pretend that our family does have it all together when it really doesn't. We want everyone to assume that our family gets up every morning in a great mood, eager to start the day in Bible devotions and prayer. Brothers and sisters bless each other with their every word and mom and dad are so in love they just can't stop being kissy face all over each other. We would be absolutely appalled if anyone knew that on the way to church mom and dad were cussing at each other and the kids were screaming and crying in the back seat of the car. So we pull up in the parking lot and suck it up. Put on our fake smiles and pretend to love each other and that we just can't wait for church to start but on the inside we are absolutely dying in a pile feeling like we are a failure unworthy to be to even be in church right then condemned and ashamed because we have failed to meet the ideal expectation When Jacob was an old man and knew that he was about to die, he gathered his large family together. He prayed over them and prophesied and spoke blessings over them. It was a very rare good family moment for Jacob's house. Part of what he said is what we read earlier. I want to look at verse 26 again. He's got his whole family before him there and he says... The blessings of your father, talking about him, have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. That right there just seems crazy to me. He looks back over his life and his family. This highly dysfunctional. Messed up family and says that he has been blessed more than any of his ancestors and that his blessings pile higher than the highest mountain. I want to go, really, Jacob? I mean, are you in denial here? Are you just ignoring the fact that your kids are responsible for some pretty serious crimes? Are you ignoring the fact that you even broke God's law by taking more than one wife? And not only that, but those wives being sisters? Are you in denial about all the hatred and fighting and strife and chaos that existed in your home almost on a daily basis? I mean, maybe you're just faking it like we all do when we want people to think that our family's got it all together. Because unless that's what you're doing, I don't see how you can sit there and declare that you are an exceedingly blessed man. How was Jacob able to... To say that, honestly, we're going to find out in a minute. Before we do, I want to address the question that some of you may be wondering, and that is that if if our definition in church culture doesn't line up with God's definition of the ideal family, then what is his definition? What is the biblical definition of the ideal family? I really don't know if it's something that we can put specifically into words. I mean, we may be able to form one off of what seems to be the closest thing to a definition in Ephesians 5 and 6, where Paul gives instruction to each family member. And based on that, I guess we could say that the ideal family is one where the husband loves the wife and lays his life down for her the way that Christ does the church. And he leads his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The wife honors and respects and submits to her husband. And the children obey the parents. Wouldn't it be great if that's how all our families were all the time? The truth is there is no family that's going to be like that all the time. Most of us would do good to get one or two of those things right just a couple of days of the week i mean much less have all that happen on the same day my gosh that would be a miracle because i mean if your family is like mine there's days where carol and i are doing great and the kids are just something has happened something flipped in their brain and there nobody's obeying anybody and then days where she and i may be at odds with each other but the kids are just as well behaved as they can be or days where Carol is really honoring and respecting me well, but I'm being a big selfish jerk to her. But rarely can I think of any time where all of those things just happen on the same day, and we were like, we have arrived at the ideal family. <laughs> the moment I've ever thought about that, that rug was jerked right out from under me really quick. thing is I don't believe God expects our families to be like that all the time and I may go so far as to say I don't know if he really wants our families to be that perfect this side of heaven and here's why for the last two weeks we've talked about how everything God does and everything he creates is all for his glory to display the beauty of his holiness and to make evident his eternal attributes. So he created a family for that purpose, to display his character and nature on earth, to reflect his attributes, the attributes of his grace and his forgiveness and mercy and patience, restoration and healing. But in a perfect ideal family, There's no place for those attributes to be seen. In order to display his forgiveness, there's got to be something to forgive. In order to experience his healing, there's got to be a hurt. In order to see his restoration power at work, something's got to be broken. In order to extend grace, there first has to be an offense. Don't let Satan condemn you and lie to you that you are some colossal failure when the expectations that you have for your family are not met. Don't believe the lie that you got a raw or an unfair deal when it comes to your family. I'm telling you right now, those unmet expectations aren't signs of failure. They're signs of opportunity. They are opportunities for God to show up in an incredible way in your life, in your family. And for you to experience him in ways that you wouldn't have if he would have met all of the expectations that you had. And think about this. If God is sovereign... And he is involved in every detail of our lives, and nothing happens without first being sifted through his hands, which I believe is the case since the Bible shows us this over and over and over again. That means that those things about your family that you are so discouraged and so ashamed and so condemned about right now, God could have prevented any of those things from happening and seen to it that every one of your expectations were met. He could have easily done that. But for him not to have, it means that there is a great, divine, and glorious purpose in it. It's part of his plans for your life that comes from the infinite wisdom of his mind. It's all part of his perfect plan and promise to mold you more into the image of his son. Let's look, get back to Jacob's family for a minute. Why was he able to look back on such a highly dysfunctional family and declare that he was the most blessed man of all? Well, for one, it was because he knew that he wasn't defined by all the dysfunction in his family. And the fact that his eyes weren't on all the chaos and the dysfunction, his eyes were actually on Jesus in that moment. You say, Jesus? He hadn't even come along yet. No, but he was there. By revelation of the Holy Spirit, Jacob was able to see something that transcended all the dysfunction and chaos. He saw it all as God using it for part of his big story, the telling of his big story of the redemption of mankind. Hebrews 11, many would call the Hall of Fame of Faith, records this moment at the end of Jacob's life where he's gathered his whole family together. And it says that by faith, he blessed his sons. He was able to speak and declare these blessings because his faith, he was able to see something beyond just what his eyes could see in the natural. He was able to see past the unmet expectations of his family, and he was able to see in that moment the expectation of something greater expectation of a Messiah that somehow was going to come from all this dysfunction and chaos. We have the ability now to look back and see exactly how God did use all this and weave it together. For one thing, he had ordained that the nation of Israel was going to be made up of 12 tribes. The heads of each of those tribes were these 12 sons of Jacob. He wouldn't have had those particular 12 sons if they hadn't have been mothered by those four women. If there wouldn't have been a hated rivalry, rivalry with his brothers, Joseph wouldn't have been sold into slavery. If that hadn't happened, he wouldn't have eventually become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And in that position, he was able to stockpile tons of provision because God told him of this severe famine that was going to come. And when the famine did come, people from all over that whole area came to get some of that provision to survive. Many came from Israel, including his family that he was reunited with. Over a period of time, so many of the Hebrews came that the next Pharaoh, was afraid that they were going to take over Egypt and so he had them enslaved for 400 years and then Moses came along and freed them and led them back into the promised land but none of that would have happened without the chaos and dysfunction that occurred in Jacob's family But that's not all Jacob's ugly wife had four sons and then two later on That fourth son was named Judah, who became the head of the tribe of Judah. You know what famous Israelite came from the tribe of Judah? Jesus. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. If Jacob hadn't been tricked into marrying Leah, there wouldn't have been a Judah. There wouldn't have been Jesus. Jacob's whole life was filled with unmet expectations. But God used them all to carry out his divine plan for the world, for mankind. And Jacob saw God's plan laid out before him just before he died. And that's why he was able to say that I'm blessed beyond measure. Like I said, every one of us knows what it's like to experience unmet expectations in our life and in our families. For some of you, it's been harder than others. You may have expected better parents or expected your children to have taken a different path. Some of you women have expected your husband to be the spiritual leader that you had wished for. That hadn't quite happened yet. Or you men, that your wife was something other than what she is now. Many of you here, when you were first married, you are expected to stay together and live happily ever after. But that didn't happen. Listen, if there's anything that we can learn from the Bible, it's that God seems to do his best and most glorious work in the dysfunction and chaos of unmet expectations. Not in the perfect and the pristine and everything's in order and just right, but in the darkest and most painful circumstances. If your life and your family seem to be filled with unmet expectations, I know this may sound a little weird, but if you are in Christ, I would say to you, rejoice. Rejoice. For you to be in Christ means that God has chosen you to be a part of his story, which means that every unmet expectation that you have encountered, he is using to tell that incredible and glorious story. You can also rejoice knowing that you're in some pretty good company. Not only the good company of all those dysfunctional families in the Bible, but the good company of this church family. Because there's not one family in here that would fit that lofty ideal that they are the ones that have got it all together. Not one. And here's the last and best part of it all. Every unmet expectation that we encounter should point us straight to Jesus because he was the poster boy for unmet expectations. He was nothing what people expected the Savior and the Messiah to be. And so I would say then that the ideal family is not one that is completely absent of dysfunction and chaos, but one that responds to the dysfunction and chaos in a way that displays the worth of God. You do that when you trust Him with those unmet expectations and look forward to how He's going to use them It's part of his perfect and wise plan. You do that when you don't hide those things in shame, appearing to be something that you're not, but you know that those things don't define you. What defines you is the blood of Jesus, no matter how many unmet expectations may come in your life. Because of what Jesus has done and because he is the ultimate unmet expectation, we can have hope in situations that most people will look at in shame. We can experience victory in situations that others will look at and declare a defeat. It's all about keeping your eyes on Jesus and trusting him with every detail of your life, even the detail and the dysfunction of your family. He's got it in his hands. Let's pray. God, your grace, your goodness never ceases to amaze me. Lord, I thank you for speaking to us through your word this morning. God, I thank you that you are removing the shame and condemnation from those who have believed the lie that they have been a failure when it comes to their family. Lord, those who have been carrying around this, this burden of guilt, God, would you let them know how valued they are in Christ. Lord, that again, that you would bring us into new levels of trust in you. God, I thank you so much for the hope that we have in you. Lord, in so many situations that people will say it's hopeless, not for those that are in Christ. Because that means that you have a plan. And nothing, no detail escapes your notice. God, I pray that Lord, we would all God, just be families that do glorify you not in our perfection but in the way that we respond to the difficulties that come. God, that we respond to them the way that you would. Respond to them and trust in you and not let Satan just Attach his shame on us. and God, I pray that you would just cultivate a sense of family in this church. Lord, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is where you say that you promise you put the lonely in families. God, I know that there are people in this church body that have been lonely because of the lack of family that they have experienced. I pray that they would find it through your love and grace in this church family. God, for those that have felt like they have been kind of outsiders in a church that puts so much emphasis on family, Lord, I pray that you would remove that false ideal right now. God, and let them see that they're just as much a part of, of this church family as anyone. God, their family situation doesn't mean that they are less than anyone else. And we've all got issues in our family. We're all working towards finding you in the midst of all the chaos and the dysfunction and the, the unmet expectations. And so, Lord, I pray that through this we would all just grow closer together as you draw us closer and closer to you by your grace and your love and your mercy. God, I thank you for being here, for being just so good it's so sweet Jesus I thank you that you did not meet anyone's expectation if you would have we wouldn't be able to be here today declaring how blessed we are in you Lord help us to know what it means to be washed in your blood Holy Spirit, have your way in the remainder of this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to spend a brief